If you have your Bible with you, you can open to Exodus 28. I initially thought that we were going to try to cover 28 and 29, but as sometimes happens, get into the passage and you find that there's no way to do that. So we're going to be in Exodus 28 today. For the sake of time, uh, we'll bounce around just a touch so that you can get an idea as to where we'll spend our our time and our energy this morning. Uh, If you have headings in your Bible, uh, you might have a heading that says something like the the garments or the clothing of the priests. Uh, And uh, more specifically, most of the attention in chapter 28 is given to the clothing or the garments of the high priest. Uh, which is significant because of the unique access that the high priest was given uh, even to go into the most holy place where God's presence was uniquely represented. So start with me at uh, verses 1 and 2. The Lord says to Moses, Then bring near to yourself Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the sons of Israel to minister as priests to me. Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, Aaron's sons. You shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. Just take note of that. Hold on to it for right now. We'll, we'll allude to it a little bit later. You're going to make garments for the high priest for glory and for beauty. And then skip down with me to verse 6. One of the primary clothing elements that are mentioned here is what's referred to as an ephod um, where we don't have a, um, a very specific description that we can give except to say that it seems to function as something like maybe some sort of a, a robe-like quality, a tunic or something like that that would have run from the shoulders at least down to the, to the thighs, perhaps even lower than that. But in verse 6, We're told they shall also make the ephod of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen, the work of the skillful workmen. It shall have two shoulder pieces joined to its two ends, that it may be joined. The skillfully woven band which is on it shall be like its workmanship of the same material, of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, Six of their names on the one stone, and the names of the remaining six on the other stone, according to their birth. As a jeweler engraves a signet, you shall engrave the two stones according to the names of the sons of Israel. You shall set them in filigree settings of gold. You shall put the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of memorial for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders... For memorial. You shall make filigree settings of gold and two chains of pure gold. You shall make them twisted of cordage work, and you shall put the corded chains on the filigree settings. And then here's a second piece that we'll refer to as the breast piece, starting in verse 15. You shall make a breast piece of judgment. 
the work of a skillful workman, like the work of the ephod you shall make it, of gold, of blue, and purple, and scarlet material, and fine twisted linen you shall make it. It shall be square and folded double, a span in length and a span in width. You shall mount on it four rows of stones. The first row shall be a row of ruby, topaz, and emerald. The second row, a turquoise, a sapphire, and a diamond. The third row, jacinth, agate, and amethyst. And the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. The stone shall be according to the names of the sons of Israel. Twelve according to their names. They shall be like the engravings of a seal, each according to his name for the twelve tribes. You shall make on the breastpiece chains of twisted cordage work and pure gold. You shall make on the breastpiece two rings of gold and shall put the two rings on the two ends of the breastpiece. You shall put the two cords of gold on the two rings at the ends of the breastpiece. You shall put the other two ends of the two cords on the two filigree settings and put them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod at the front of it. You shall make two rings of gold and shall place them on the two ends of the breastpiece on the edge of it, which is toward the inner side of the ephod. You shall make two rings of gold and put them on the bottom of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod on the front of it, close to the place where it is joined above the skillfully woven band of the ephod. They shall bind the breastpiece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a blue cord so that it will be on the skillfully woven band of the ephod and that the breastpiece will not come loose from the ephod. And then notice... Verse 29, Aaron will carry the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment over his heart when he enters the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. You will put in the breastpiece of judgment the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord, and Aaron will carry the judgment of the sons of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. And then one last place, skip down to verse 36. This is a, a plate or an engraving that will go on the headpiece that the high priest will wear. We're told in verse 36, you will also make a plate of pure gold and shall engrave on it like the engravings of a seal, holy to the Lord. You will fasten it on a blue cord and it will be on the turban. It will be at the front of the turban. It will be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron will take away the iniquity of the holy things which the sons of Israel consecrate with regard to all their holy gifts. And it will always be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we would ask that you would do what only you can do through this passage, that you would open our eyes to see the beauty and the glory of our high priest, Jesus Christ. Help us to marvel at what it is that you have given us in the gift of your Son. May your Spirit be at work and active in our hearts and minds, bringing conviction where necessary, bringing comfort where needed. But let all things be done for your glory, for the exaltation of Jesus Christ, and for a demonstration of the power of your Spirit in our midst. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let me go ahead and cut to the chase and tell you that, uh, that in reading Exodus 28, talking about the high priest, even with the, with the clothing of the high priest, you ought to, or we ought to, as we read this, have in our minds, I'm reading about Jesus. 
okay? Let me, let me give you at least one verse. You don't need to turn there now, but let me give you at least one reason why that is. What's being described in Exodus 28 here is how the high priest is to be dressed or fitted out for the work that he has been assigned to do on behalf of the people. And more specifically, the work that he's been assigned to do that involves him going into the tabernacle, into the place where God dwells to represent the people there before God. In Hebrews 9, verse 24, we're told that Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. All right, do you hear that? Using the Old Testament tabernacle imagery, what we've been reading about here over the last couple weeks, Hebrews is pressing upon us that all of that, for as great and as glorious as it may have seemed or appeared or may have been believed, all of that just shadows compared to what really matters and the real substance that we are given and introduced to in Christ. And so in the same way, or in a greater way, we ought to say, in a greater way, as the high priest in Moses' day, as Aaron would go into the tabernacle tent to meet with God and to meet with God on behalf of the people, Hebrews wants us to know the reason that God did that back in the Old Testament was so that we now today would have some way of conceiving or mapping out in our mind what Christ is doing for us right at this very moment. That Christ enters into, as our representative, as a man, as God enters into the presence of his Father to represent his people. So everything that you hear in this passage, you ought to be thinking in some way, this is pointing me to the greater priest, this is pointing me to the greater work, the greater gift of Jesus. In doing that then, I want to just try to do three things. One of the things that happens in, in this passage is that you, you have a couple words or a couple terms that are repeated uh, multiple times. One of those is the word uh, that we might translate, depending on the context, as to lift up or to carry or to bear, like when you, when you bear a load, bear a burden, something like that. So when it talks about the stones on the shoulders of the high priest, how it will have the names of the sons of Israel, the tribes on those stones. We're told that as a result of those stones, the names being on his shoulder, that the high priest then will bear the names, will carry, lift up and carry the names of the sons of Israel into the presence of God. That he will bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders. In the description of the breastpiece, we're told that Aaron, in verse 29, is going to carry the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment over his heart when he enters into the holy place. So he's got two stones with six names apiece on his shoulders so that when he enters into God's dwelling, he's carrying 
the people with him. And then also, as he enters into God's presence, he has something hanging over his chest, over his heart, that has 12 stones, each stone having the name of one of the tribes on there, so that both on his shoulders and over his heart, he's carrying the people into God's presence with him. And then the third place that this carrying or lifting up language occurs is at the end when it talks about this gold plate that is going to be on the turban that the high priest is going to have a a title that says holy to the lord on his forehead and that so that he can carry away same word same hebrew word so that he can carry away the iniquity of the holy things that the people bring to the tabernacle court. He's carrying the people by name on his shoulders. He's carrying the people by name over his heart. And he is even carrying away the iniquity even of their gifts that they bring to the Lord. Start with the first one. Start with the ephod in verses 6 through 14. And because we just want to cut to the chase, I'm just going to say, not just the high priest, I'm just going to say Christ. Christ carries us into God's presence. I don't think it's accidental or mere repetition, just repetitiveness, that you have two pieces of the clothing or the outfit that are said to represent the priest carrying the people into God's presence, right? Right? on the shoulders and over the heart. I don't think that's accidental. I don't think it's mere repetition. Let's start, though, with the recognition that the reason that the priest must carry the names of the people on his shoulders into the holy place and into the most holy place is because the people are not allowed to go in themselves. It's not merely even that they're not allowed to go in. They can't go in. They can't go in because of their sin and their iniquity, their twistedness, their corruption. God will provide a way for their sin to be atoned for But even then, that is sheer grace and mercy that he would allow their sins to be paid for through the death of an animal rather than through their own death. To come further in and to move into the presence of God is not something that sinners can just do on their own whim. Only a small handful of people are ever able to enter into the tent where God dwells. And only one person, the high priest, once a year is able to go into the most holy place where God is said to uniquely dwell. All of that, those prohibitions, that setting off, that keeping at a distance is meant to communicate to them, you can't go in because your sin separates you from a holy God. Special permission has to be granted to someone in order to enter into God's presence. And the only one who has that special permission is the high priest. And even then, 
not because he deserves it, but because in God's grace and mercy, he's making an allowance. All that to say that one of the reasons that the names of the people will be on the shoulders of the priest is because we are to see and to understand that what the priest is going to do, he is going to carry them in. His work, his labor will take them into the presence of God when no amount of work and no amount of labor on their part can ever qualify them to enter in. Right? That's, that's the picture of carrying them on the shoulders. The picture is the priest, the qualifications, or the strength of the priest, the qualifications of the priest given to him by God is what's going to make up for the weaknesses and the inadequacies and the impurities of the people themselves. He has to carry them into the presence of God. They cannot walk in themselves. But when he walks in, because of the fact that the high priest will go in alone and yet go in with the names of God's people on his shoulders, carrying them in, that means that every single time that the priest enters in to the holy place and the most holy place, when God sees the priest, he sees his people. If Christ is the true and greater high priest given to us, that means that if Christ is fulfilling in full, in truth, what these things only outline, only shadow, that means that when the Father looks on the Son, he sees you. And understand, this is not, this is not a seeing that causes the Father to wince. This is not a carrying in of the people into the presence of God that causes the high priest to cringe because of what he's carrying in, because of who he's carrying in. Right? This goes back to the very beginning. Go back to Exodus 28, verse 2. These holy garments, all that the priest is going to wear, notice verse 2, is for glory and for beauty. That means that one of the things that's being represented here is that when the priest carries in the people who are not worthy, who do not have permission to enter into God's presence, when he carries them in on his own shoulders to use his rights and privileges to represent the rest of the people, it is not a mess of filth 
and putrid corruption that is entering into God's presence. It is beauty and glory that God sees. Right? Some of you find, find this very difficult to lay hold of. Because you know what kind of person you are in your own natural state, and you think for Christ to carry me in in any shape or form has got to be repulsive. How can God stand it? But you know what we forget when we think that way. We forget that before the priest will enter into the tent, to the tabernacle, to where God dwells, he will do business at the altar. Sin will be paid for. A sacrifice will be made. Atonement will be offered. So that on the basis of that sacrifice and that atonement, when the priest enters in with the blood of the sacrifice, that blood counts for the purification of God's people so that when he enters into God's presence, God is not looking on the sin of his people. He's looking on the perfected, purified beauty of his people as it's portrayed and displayed in the person of the priest. Because Christ is our high priest and he has entered into the true tabernacle to represent us before God, that means that he has entered in having already paid for and accounted for and atoned for our sin so that when he goes in bearing the names of his people, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, do not look on the names of those people cringing over their sin and impurities. They look and they marvel at the glory and beauty of what the Son has accomplished to perfect and purify dirty sinners. We are dirty no more. But it has to be even better than that. In the sense that God intends for the names to be carried in. Right? Not, not just a vague sort of, well, I represent the group kind of a thing. But names are written down on the shoulders. I'm carrying in the people. You ever wonder why the Old Testament spends so much time and ink on genealogies? Right? Don't smirk. It'll give it away that you're carnal and fleshly. Right, You read through the Bible in a year and you get to the genealogies in Genesis or in Chronicles or something and it's like, well, time to speed read. 
And that's on a good day. Most of the time, we'll just skip over altogether. Have you ever stopped to think that one of the reasons that the scriptures take time to list names is because the listing of names in and of itself is another reminder of the fact that God knows who belong to him? Down to the person. The problem with the high priest is that because of his limitations, he can't go in with every single member of the nation of Israel listed on his shoulders. His shoulders are not broad enough. If we could get a better high priest, someone better than Aaron, someone bigger, more powerful, maybe even infinite and eternal, Maybe even the carrying of the names would improve. You ever wonder if we have a high priest like that? Yeah, we do. Right, good. I'm glad you're asking, who is, who is this better priest? Turn to John, John chapter 10. And then we're going to skip from John chapter 10 over to John 17. Jesus presenting himself as the good shepherd, as the door for the sheep, makes this statement in John 10, verse 3. The doorkeeper to him, to the shepherd, the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep, how? By name. And then over in John 17, what many have rightly called Jesus high priestly prayer. Look at verses 9 and 10. Of what Jesus has just said, he says to the Father in verse 9, John 17, 9, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. He's talking about the disciples. I'm praying specifically for them. We might say something like, I'm praying for them by name. Oh, lucky for them. If only we could have been one of the 12. Look at verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, referring to the 12, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Who is Jesus praying for? He's praying for you.
by name. I call my sheep by name. I know them. They come to me when I call them, when I call him, when I call her, when I call Jonathan Merritt by name. I identify with him. Before I go to the cross to make payment for sin, I'm praying for my people that I know. It's for them that I do this. This is not some vague, ambiguous thing. This is an eternal high priest who knows your face, who knows your name. And he pays for your sin and carries with him into the presence of his father your name on his shoulders. And he comes in bearing the names of his people, as it says in Exodus 28, for beauty and for glory, so that when he enters into the presence of his father, he says, look at this. Look at these people. And all the people that he has won, all the people that he has saved, that he has paid for, make him look glorious and because the people that he saves make him look glorious those people can't be lost because to lose one of those people that he has saved that portrays or promotes his glory would be to diminish his glory do you see that because of the fact that his work in saving you adds to his glory that means that you are safe and secure because his glory will not be diminished or given to another you will always be born by him by name And then we come to the breast piece. And we've got the names of the tribes written hanging over the heart of the priest. There's a little bit of a difficulty here, probably with translation, when it talks about this breast piece of judgment. The, the judgment that's being talked about here, does, I, I don't think... Contextually, I don't think it's the kind of judgment that we think of in terms of convicting someone of sin, per se, right? Like you're, you're passing sentence or judgment. Rather, it's something along the lines of um, Psalm 19, when the, when the psalmist is reflecting on the word of the Lord, and he says, the judgments of the Lord are true, they are righteous altogether. Meaning, everything that the Lord decides... Everything that the Lord declares according to his mind and his will is good and right. So here, this breast piece of judgment is a breast piece of decision or direction for the people. That seems to be at the end of the passage around verse 30. That seems to be what the Urim and the Thummim are. I'm not going not to go into that right now, but it seemed to be things that represented the direction that God gives to his people. All right, you're saying, okay, Merritt, you're starting to lose me now. Too much history, starting to delve into archaeology, dust and bones, right? 
All right, here's the significance of this. The reason that this is not mere repetition to say that the priest is going to carry the names of the people on his shoulders and that he's going to carry it over the judgments or the decisions of the Lord is because it's saying that not only does the priest carry the people in before God so that they can be seen and welcomed by him, but he carries them in with all the rights and privileges that come with that. That is, that because God has welcomed his people in through the work of the high priest, he will give to them all that they need to continue to walk with him in fellowship and in harmony. If the people need a decision, if they need a word from the Lord, he is going to give it to them because that's what the high priest is calling to the Lord for on their behalf. He doesn't just bring the people to God and God to the people. He ensures that in doing that, the people know how to walk with God. And not only does he ensure that the people will know how to walk with God, that's part of his job. But notice, if carrying the names of the people on the shoulders of the priest say something about the fact that it's by the strength of the priest that he is making up for the weakness of the people to carry them in where they cannot carry themselves, then to say that he is carrying the names of the people over his heart must be in some way to say that he goes not out of sheer duty or obligation, but because his heart is given to the people. His heart beats for them. He wants what is best for the people. He doesn't bring the people in. He doesn't represent them. And then, like a kid who's all mucked up, brush all that stuff off and say, Ugh, glad that's done. He brings us into the presence of God, and he says he appeals on our behalf. Now give them what they need to look like your people. Give them wisdom, give them direction. Hebrews 7.25 says that because Jesus lives eternally, that because he has entered into the true tabernacle, Hebrews 7 says, therefore, he is able to save completely those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Everything that you need to enjoy your union with your creator and with your king is given to you by Jesus Christ. The priest in the Old Testament goes in on a semi-regular basis. He goes in, he does what he needs to do, and he has to come back out again. He goes into the most holy place only once a year. The New Testament tells us that when Jesus enters into the presence of God, he enters there and he never leaves. Which means that because Jesus stands in for us, that we are never outside of the thought and sight and mind of God himself. 
He never loses sight of us. He never loses sight of you by name. And all that you need for life and godliness, all you have to do is go to your priest and say, I need this. I need direction. I need peace. And the heart and the compassion of a great, perfect high priest is drawn to you and gives you what you ask for. He carries us by his strength. He carries us by his love and compassion. As God looks on our high priest, he looks on us, but he sees us in the perfection and beauty of Christ. And then the last thing we might say, number three, that along with carrying us, he carries away the impurities of the gifts that we bring. Back in Exodus 28, verse 36, the priest is going to have a phrase written on a plate attached to his turban or his headdress, whatever that might look like, holy to the Lord. It's saying something about the priest, that the priest has been uniquely designated and set apart to do work that no one else can do. Part of that unique work is what we've already been talking about, the carrying of the people into the presence of God. But part of that work also is what you get at the very end or towards the end of the chapter when we see in chapter 28, verse 38, that because this plate, this reminder, as if God needed it, that the high priest has been uniquely set aside for this work, because Aaron is holy to the Lord, Aaron will take away the iniquity of the holy things which the sons of Israel consecrate with regard to all their holy gifts. Just pause right there for a second. Do you hear what is being said there? Even when the people obey what God has told them to do in bringing sacrifices and offerings, gifts and donations, there is not a single moment, a single gift, a single offering that they ever give to the Lord that is not in some way tainted by their own sin. I don't know that we can fully grasp the immense infinite distance between the holiness of God and our sinfulness. When I repent of sin, my repentance is so touched and tainted by my flesh and my weaknesses that if I could fully see how weak my repentance was compared to the holy perfection of God, I would have to repent of my repenting. If I saw and knew 
the holy perfections of an infinite God. When I sing with joy, when I give with gladness, I would have to admit and confess that my heart is cold. Every single thing that we bring to a holy, infinite God is in and of itself, in our work, in our effort, in our giving, is imperfect, unworthy. Why would he take it? Why would he take it? He takes it because Jesus takes it from us to give to the Father. Jesus is the brother who comes alongside the weak younger sibling who takes all the scribbling, the notes that's been written to mom or the note that's been written to dad, rife with misspellings, crooked, disheveled, and he takes it and he corrects it before he takes it. To give to dad. And because of the fact that we offer up our acts of obedience, because we come to the Father through Jesus Christ, even what we offer to God in thanks and praise to Him is only accepted because of the high priest that's been given to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Listen, people, you leave on a Sunday morning feeling a little bit disappointed that the service was not better. The preaching was a little subpar today. Singing was off. Why did we sing that song? Listen, here's news for all of us. There is never a Sunday when after we're done just looking at mere performance or action where God looks and says, oh my goodness, that is something. What he does, though, is that he sees our singing, our speaking, our praying in the person of Jesus Christ. And because we have been brought to him through Christ, he takes all of those weak efforts that we bring, he cleans it up, He makes it perfect, and he hands it over to his Father so that it can be accepted as a full and perfect gift. We don't do that. Jesus does it. And because Jesus does that for us, that means that even our weak and half-hearted prayers and songs are always going to be accepted. Even when I sit and think and I feel the war between the spirit and the flesh, any meager thing, any pitiful gift that I offer up to God is accepted in Christ Jesus my Lord. This is our high priest. 
This is the one who carries us in, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who carries us into the presence of the Father, who represents us such that when the Father looks on his Son, he sees all of us by name, but he sees us in the glory and in the beauty of Jesus Christ. And in bringing us as individual people, as his corporate body, as bringing us into the presence of God to offer us as a gift to the Father, every other gift that comes with that, that we bring in response to what God has done for us in Christ through the Spirit, is accepted not because of our perfections, but because of the perfections of Christ. My prayer, my hope, would be that God would do two complementary things for us, not just today, but through the years. That he would continue to show us how unworthy we are to be his people. And how gloriously true it is that we are his people because of Jesus Christ. That he would increase and we would decrease. Let's pray. If you would, take just a few moments to reflect silently in your own mind on the truth of God's word, on the beauty of Christ. Father, help us to see the depths of our sin and our unworthiness. Not so that we can wallow in self-pity or guilt, but so that in seeing the depths of our sin, we can see a heightened view of the glory of Jesus Christ. That we would think very little of ourselves and think much of him that we would know and recognize that it's not by any works of righteousness that we have done, but according to your mercy, you have saved us. To know that even as we continue to bring our gifts and sacrifices and offerings to you in praise and in worship, even those things cannot hold us in your grace. But rather, it's the continuing work of grace that we have through Jesus Christ that takes even our weak, half-hearted, impure efforts and cleans them up and perfects them such that they would be seen as honoring and God-fitting. Father, I ask that if there is anyone here today who does not know what that union with Christ is like, that you would open their eyes to see their desperate need for a Savior, and that for those of us who have come to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, that you would continue to grow us in our full appreciation 
for the infinite gift that is ours in your Son. We pray this in your name. Amen.